We'll be in Amos chapter 6, if you want to turn in your Bibles there. Amos chapter 6. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your power, for your grace and your mercy, that you are faithful to us and that when we are the wandering ones, you are faithful to seek us out, that you want to have a relationship with us. You want to be known by us and you want us to be with you forever. Thank you for extending such grace to us, Lord, because we're unworthy. Um, We just desire to draw near to you now. Please speak to us and give us ears to hear what you're saying in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, what interested me in the local paper was like the sports section and the comics. It, I was kind of lamenting, like, you know, we don't, my kids don't have that experience to have the paper come every day or on Sundays and to go out and, uh, you know, a headline would occasionally grab my attention, but the business section, ah, stocks, <laughs> who cares? But it was the comic strips. It was uh, the sports section and things like Calvin and Hobbes and Farside and Peanuts. Those were the ones that I would go to. Uh, I don't know what was popular in Australia at that time. What, what would it be? Peanuts? Hagar the Horrible. That's right. BC. Did you guys get that one? Yeah, that's a good one. <coughs> What's the Aussie one? Okay, right. Well, if any of you guys have one of those books, uh, I'd love to see it, just to see what, what was cool back in the day. But uh, Calvin and Hobbes, that was funny. It was clever. Farside was weird and wacky. Peanuts was just relatable. There was something about it that we could identify with. And I personally like Charlie Brown, the main character, this lovable uh, but insecure loser. Really, he failed at a lot of things, and he was positive. Like, he had a positive outlook on life, but he was often disappointed. Uh, he was exasperated, and he'd have these negative thoughts and just like, good grief, he would, he would say to himself when something happened. Uh, and I've learned that those bad feelings, like being picked on or being left out or feeling disappointed through faith, that can actually be turned to good when it directs us to seek God. When we have those bad feelings, to to seek God with those feelings, and he lifts us up, he helps us. And knowing that God is overall, that he is sovereign, that he knows what we're going through, that is a great comfort to us. Belief in a sovereign God, however, it can move some to adopt a a bit of a fatalistic view or a caesarasera, like a determinism that, and it leads us to be a bit lazy about our responsibilities with God because, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen and there's nothing I can do about it. And to distance ourselves because we don't want to be hurt, we don't want to be emotionally engaged with something all the time and be burdened by it, we will shrug it off and just say, yeah, it's in God's hands and it's out of my mind now. Instead of giving it to him and seeking him to do something about it, God revealed through Amos that judgment for sin was coming And he gave them this prophetic message because there was still hope for them in God. He wanted them to respond to it. He wanted them to repent and be restored to him. He wasn't telling them, like, there's no hope for you. That's why I'm warning you. No, it was because there was hope for them that he was warning them. It was up to them whether they would receive it or not. And Amos, he didn't look at the culture and say, you know, they deserve judgment. Good riddance. 
The Lord should wipe the earth with them or be angry at them, hoping that the judgment day would come sooner than later. He prayed for them. He sought grace and mercy to be shed upon them, even though judgment was coming and it was from God and it was deserved. And you ever done that? Sometimes you're like, you're wondering the source of someone's troubles and saying, well, if it's judgment, why pray for them? But you know, people under judgment need to be prayed for. People under judgment need salvation. They need deliverance. They're the ones to be praying for, the people who are in trouble. And we see that with Amos. And if we become cynical or bitter because of trouble in the world or in our own lives, we're the only ones that have a legitimate hope of help and salvation through Christ. So what a shame it would be for us to turn aside the, the ones who are his ambassadors of God's goodness, to turn aside from that. That we have more than a message. We have a relationship with the living God who can save, who can help. And uh, he's gracious to intervene. So Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? Amos is pronouncing woe upon the northern kingdom, upon those who are at ease in Zion. And it's a lament. He is exclaiming how sorrowful he is for the judgment that's coming. Rest, relaxation, that's a gift from God. But like all good things, it can be abused. It can be uh, lusted after and sought. Um, and this ease, it has the I idea behind that word of being secure, proud, selfish, and indolent. So you're seeking to avoid labor and trying to find ease for yourself. It's really a self-focused ease. Instead of being concerned about their perilous condition, about those who were starving or on hard times, on those outward cities, that those uh, cities on the outskirts that had already been taken by the Assyrians, um, they were kind of like, don't care. And they were like people on a sinking ship, uh, sitting on comfy cushions and smoking cigars when they could be helping other people be brought to safety. And those who were at ease in Mount Zion, they trusted in Mount Samaria. They weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in the fact that they were God's people, that they had this fortified city. Now the irony is you would expect someone who's selfish to care about their future, but they didn't. They, they didn't see their need for God's help. They were blind to their need to humble themselves before God. People who came to the rulers, it says people who come to you, you're at ease, you don't want to be burdened with their problems, you don't want to take your time to help them, so you will be the first ones judged. And God directs their attention to some notable cities that had been taken at that time. Kalna and Hamath in Syria, they were sacked by the Assyrians. Gath, of the Philistines, it was an example of a city that was bigger than Samaria and stronger than Samaria, but, but they had fallen. And so God says, do you think that you'll escape judgment when they haven't? That you can stand against the Assyrians on your own when these cities haven't? Are you better than, their, better than them? And the obvious answer is no, or like Cusco and the Emperor's New Groove, it's like, don't know, don't care. They just, they were all into themselves and what they had going on. They're 
their, uh, I guess, their possessions, their position, and their prosperity. And God sends this message to unsettle those at ease. Now, I tell you, if you are taking your leave, if you're at ease and relaxing, do you like feeling unsettled? No, none of us like being unsettled. But God's going to unsettle them. He's trying to unsettle them because they're just trying to ignore or silence his warnings that are for their good. So those unsettled feelings, it prompts a humble heart to seek the Lord and say, why do I feel unsettled about this? What is going on? And we go, oh, well, who cares? Or we can seek the Lord with that. Amos 6, verse 3. Woe to you who put off Put far off the day of doom, who cause the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore they shall now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. Now we get a bit of a picture of what living in ease looks like in Israel. It says that they procrastinated concerning the day of judgment that was coming. They procrastinated the personal reform that they knew needed to take place because they imagined that that day, it's far off. It's not coming near us. Uh, and they did violence to justice and to their brothers, and there's this this kind of image of them lounging on these imported ivory benches. Uh, They're sleeping on couches in a drunken stupor. Instead of contributing to the good of their neighbors, they're eating lambs and calves. Those would be choice and expensive meats because they're tender, they're young, they're not mature yet. And uh, it would be very rare for people to eat lamb in that culture or to eat a calf because the, the best value would come from an animal that's come to maturity that could provide wool and milk and work, and also young. They, that is the key to having more sheep and more oxen is to let that animal grow to maturity, but they like spent it all on one feast or one meal. They were like people who were maxing out their credit on luxuries. They were mortgaging their future for the present comforts. And they're like singing and, wow, let's make some new instruments and idly. They're quite taken with their musical abilities. And it says they're drinking wine out of bowls or buckets. Like, why a a goblet? Who needs a glass when you could drink out of a bucket? (laughs) So they're just lounging around. There's this very lazy, drunken look about things. And and they're applying the best ointments to their skin. You know, they get a wrinkle like, oh, no, you know, the best ointment to to cover that up. And, you know, they're definitely slapping on the SPF 50 when they go outside. And they smelled terrific. That's what they were concerned with, their appearance, how they looked and how they felt. But not the others. The people that they were responsible to be caring for, they ignored. And it says that they were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. The poor cried out and they had no compassion. They're they're eating at these banquets while others go hungry and for their lack of grief over the afflictions because they were detached from the feelings of other people, they would be the first judged. They should have mourned, but they didn't. And that's why God was judging them. 
A curious example of this we see in the life of the high priest Eli. Uh, He was a godly man. He was loyal to God. But he didn't grieve over the sin of his sons uh, or do anything to stop them when he knew that they were in sin. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were in the priesthood. And their sin was infamous. And at least one time in the scripture, Eli called them out for it. And he asked, like, why do you do such things? Everyone that I talk to has a bad report about what you guys have been up to in the tabernacle. And it's one thing to sin against man and face a judge, but it's a total different thing to sin against God because who's going to stand up for you then? So he, he understands God and his power and his authority, but even though he knew that they caused the people to sin, so they were sinning, causing the people to sin, but he... He didn't do anything about it. And so he would be judged for that. And God revealed that to Samuel in 1 Samuel 3.13. God said, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And I'm like, wow, that is super heavy. And, and why could there be no atonement? Because there was no repentance. There was no ceasing of sin. There was no, there was no grief for sin. There was no turning from sin. And so if you continue in the sin, how effective can your sacrifice be? And so Eli, he knew that God had spoken to Samuel. When he woke in the morning, he swore an oath and said, Samuel, tell me everything that God said. Don't hold back. And Samuel did not. He tells him the ear-tingling details. And it says in 1 Samuel 3.18, Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I find this response really disturbing. Like, let God do whatever he thinks is good. Not like, I'm sorry. Or, I need to change. Or, what am I going to do now? What would be a reasonable response if you, to- if you were told by God that there would be no atonement possible for your sin forever? Well, David, when confronted with this sin, publicly said, I have sinned. So he admitted that he sinned. When wicked King Ahab heard of judgment that God was bringing upon him, it says he put on sackcloth and went softly. And God said, look, he's humbled himself before me. I won't, I won't bring judgment during his lifetime because see how he's... He has humbled himself when he was confronted. When the Ninevites, they heard of the pronouncement of judgment, it says for three days, the king and all the people and their animals, they fasted from food and water, just in case. I mean, God might have mercy on them. So they humbled themselves. Peter, he wept when he realized that he had denied Jesus three times when he said, I'm not going to deny you. I would die for you. The common thread between all these was a broken heart that desired restoration with God, that sought his uh, forgiveness and help. We don't see any contrition in Eli, just a fatalistic, defeated posture, giving God permission or approval to do whatever God wants. Now that is pretty wild, that you'd say, you know, God, I give you permission to do whatever you want when it comes to judgment. Does God, God wasn't looking for his approval. God wanted him to turn. God wanted him to say, Lord, I've done the wrong thing all these years, and now God help me to change. See, I find 
Eli's response disturbing because I see a little bit of that in me. I see a bit of that hypocrisy there. That we can use God's sovereignty and power as an excuse for me not to deal with something that he's telling me to. Uh, and, and not taking my personal responsibility seriously and just say, well, God will do what's right. The wealthy rulers of Israel, they had a fatalistic view, not that they would be judged, but actually the opposite. They thought that these good times were just going to keep on coming, that they were in a time of perpetual uh, benefits and wealth, and that wasn't going to change. But God's like, it's going to change, and it's going to change for you first. You who are at ease, without grief for those who suffer. Amos 6, verse 8. The Lord is sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a relative of the dead, one who will burn the bodies, picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, Are there any more with you? Then someone will say, None. And he will say, Hold your tongue. For we dare not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. God swore by his existence. That's not changing. He swore by his existence that he is going to destroy Samaria and her people because of their pride that he hated. He hated their palaces. Amos 3.10 says they were storehouses of theft. So they had oppressed the people, they had taxed them, and they had benefited um, by oppressing the people. And there'd be no escape from God. He says if 10 men, they're stockpiling food and weapons and trying to hide, the famine, the sword, the pestilence is going to find them. And, and if, if ten are in a house, one might live. And when the relative comes to dispose of the bodies who um, is would be responsible in that day, um, cremation was not the prevailing custom among the Jews. It was burial. You would bury the bodies. Um, but the law did command, under some cases, that people, some executions were carried out with fire for some sexual sin. And also the burning of the body, that was like on top of the death penalty. So that was a really serious thing. It wasn't just to be stoned and then your body could be buried. You would be burned and then you, there would be no burial. And that was like, it just showed how terrible that sin was or how I, all sin is really. Uh, and it could be in this case that the bodies were burned um, for the sake of preventing the spread of illness. But people knew that this judgment had come from God. And in their superstition, they would say, you know, we want to erase all, all evidence of this curse. We want to get rid of it. We don't want it to cling to us. Don't even mention the name of the Lord, lest his wrath come upon us as well. It would be like um, a relative asking the survivor, are there any more dead? They go, no, praise God. Hey, don't say that. <laughs> don't invoke the name of God. We don't want to attract his attention because look at all the trouble that we're in. We, we don't want that. Uh, Calvin wrote this. He said, formerly you boasted in the name of Jehovah as if you were his peculiar people. Now you shall be silent and shudder at his name as hostile to you, as one from whom you wish to be hidden. That's not a good place to be where you're like, in that Revelation passage, like, the Lamb has come. Rocks cover us. Hills hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Like, 
That's not a place where you want to be, where you are now an enemy of God. But there was hope for them if they would repent, if they would seek the Lord. But they would not even dare speak his name because of the things that they suffered. And he says, you're not going to say my name, but I'm speaking to you. Your houses will be reduced to rubble. And, and it would not just be a dwelling, like a physical house, but a house means your, your family tree or your line. And he says, your family tree, it's going to be hewn down and made into firewood. And there's no recovery from it. If the house had broken down or had fallen in an earthquake, you could rebuild it. But the family that you will lose cannot be recovered. There'll be no recovery from this. No rebuilding possible. Verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar, who say, have we not taken Karnaim for ourselves by our own strength? But behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. The questions are verse 12. These aren't the questions that we would face every day, but these are common sense questions both answered with no, because an unshod horse, like we're, we pretty much take the shoeing of horses for granted. But in those days, you would not shoe the horses. I forget when that was, but this would be uh, well before that time. And unshod horses would, would not be running on rocks because they're very slippery and because they can actually bruise their feet. Their hooves can be bruised and uh, the joints from impact. So a horse would move very slowly across rocks. Everyone would say, no, they do not run on rocks. And you wouldn't try to plow on a rock, right? If you had a rock as big as this room and there was no topsoil at all, to try to pull a plow over it, it would break your plow. It would be totally ineffectual. There'd be no reason for it. It would, it would perhaps hurt the oxen as well. And so everyone would agree, no, horses don't run on rocks. You'd, you'd be stupid to lead your expensive horse over rocks. And, and you don't plow on rocks. We all agree. But he says, but you've all agreed that it's good to pervert justice for your benefit. Like it's beneficial to you. It's not beneficial to you, but you've turned it that way. You've celebrated the perversion of justice as good and beneficial. You've robbed yourself of the fruit of righteousness. And he lays on the irony thick. He says, you're rejoicing over Lodabar. That means without pasture. I mean, who would celebrate that? Like, I received land in Lodabar and no grazing there. Have a lot of cows and sheep, but nothing for them to eat. He says, that doesn't make any sense. It's just ridiculous. The word carname, it literally means horns. And the picture that comes to my mind, he says, you've taken the bull by the horns. And has anyone here ever run with the bulls in Spain? Anyone here want to run with the bulls in Spain? Are we just past running? Maybe. So anyway, it would be kind of like you see the biggest bull, and to show how strong you are, you grab it by the horns. Who has who in that situation? Like it takes a bit of strength to get onto that bull, but who's in charge, really? And the longer you hold on, you're going to get hurt. You cannot come out of that winning. You're like, yeah, I took that bull by the horns. You saw that, didn't you? Yeah, I saw you get gored and thrown up in the air as well. Um, so it's like, Israel, you've been proud. You've celebrated foolishness. 
the things that you should have grieved over and been ashamed over. And so God is going to raise up a nation of Assyria to oppose you and to afflict you. Only in defeat would they realize their folly and see their need to be restored to a relationship with God. Now, it's very easy for us, uh, I think, as believers and people who, who seek to lead a life that honors God with our morality, to look around the world that's, that celebrates sin and to find easy targets and to say, see, that's wrong and that's wrong. The wise will hear a warning like this and put yourself in the crosshairs because we are sinners. I am a sinner and you're a sinner. And it's easy for us to be self-assured of protection and provision like Israel was, the ones who were at ease, because there were blatant sins in the world at that time and in our time. But God's not addressing the world in Amos. He's talking to his own people, and it's really important to keep that in context. He's speaking to his own people who thought they had a relationship with God or would receive the blessing of God, but they had perverted God's wisdom and his justice and had gone their own way. He wanted them to have a fruitful, healthy relationship with him. It was through them that the, the good news of salvation would be spread to others. It's like it doesn't happen in the nation before it happens in people, individuals. So once individuals get hold of the goodness of God and they begin to follow God, then that can have an effect on a nation. But it's not like the nation gets it first and then it trickles down to people because people comprise a nation. So it took one person who took this word to heart and began to implement it and said, Lord, I do grieve for the people that are afflicted. I grieve for the sins that are not just in the nation, but in my life. And I want to be restored to relationship with you. That's healthy and fruitful and good. Chapter 7, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, oh, thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O oh Lord God, forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. In chapter 6, there were those woes, and now he begins to show him three visions in chapter 7, and he shows them this big locust swarm at the beginning of the late crop. So there was the first crop. That would be what was mown for the king and for his beasts. And then the second crop, that was for the people and their animals. And they would take of that crop and they would save some for seed, for planting. They would grind some into flour and others they would feed to their livestock. And Amos is looking on with horror. He's saying, okay, the king's already had his cut and the nobles and rulers, but what are the people going to eat? How are they going to live? They're going to starve. They won't have food. They won't have anything to plant. Lord, forgive. This would have been known by them as a judgment, as we see in Deuteronomy 28.42, because God said, if you break my covenant, these are things that will happen to you. He said, locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. Instead of adopting a fatalistic viewpoint, Amos, he, he doesn't say, God, give them what they deserve. Yeah, they deserve it. They are wicked. They are awful. 
it's terrible what's happening out there. He, he wasn't angry at them. He wasn't just saying, get him, God, you know, cheering him on to destroy. But his plea was for mercy. It was like David, when David had numbered the people. And we see in David a heart, a man after God's own heart, a desire to save others when it costs everything. Listen to this in 2 Samuel 24, 17. It says, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Let your hand be against me instead of them because I am a sinner. So Amos doesn't trot out any good things that was in Israel. Like, Lord, remember Remember how we've sacrificed to you and how we've given you these offerings and how we've been faithful to you and we've been very good about copying your word and teaching it week in and week out. He doesn't justify their sin. He just says, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Others aren't speaking the name of God for fear of judgment. Because judgment is coming, Amos, just very simple, couple sentences here, and God's like, it shall not be. Wow. One person praying makes all the difference with God. One person who's willing to seek God and to, to cry out to him. And we cannot say how things would have been different if Amos had not prayed, but God relented concerning this plague because he did. He did pray. The sovereignty of God does not mean that he ignores the pleas of the unworthy and will not relent from what he has said. And he wasn't impulsive or bloodthirsty. Remember when the children of Israel, they come out of, out of Egypt, Moses goes up on the mountain, and within days the people have made a golden calf, and they're dancing around it and sacrificing to it, and said, this, Behold your God, O Israel. This is the God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And this is what... Um, happened in Exodus 32, 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make of you a great nation. Did they, did they deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth? Yes, they did deserve that. Yet Moses sought the Lord. And at the word of Moses, God relented. He says, okay. And he's like, let me alone, Moses, so I can deal with them. And, and Moses didn't let him alone. Moses kept talking to him because that's what God wanted. He doesn't want to kill or destroy. What do you think prompted Jesus to say from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Don't you believe that the wrath of God would burn hot against those people that killed his own son out of envy? They rejected him. They betrayed him. They brutalized him, and they murdered him as an evildoer when he had only done good. But Jesus prayed for them, and those who, who crucified him did not drop dead at that moment. There was a respite. There was a chance for repentance. There was a chance for restoration. We can be guilty of encouraging God to judge others because we think they know what they've done. <laughs> and Jesus says, Lord, they don't know what they've done. 
God will see to it as a judge of all the earth that everyone will be judged for their deeds. Everyone. And he is righteous and true. But instead of rejoicing when we see an enemy stumble or someone having trouble, and then we try to discern, we think it's our job to determine whether it's from God or not before we'll pray for them. We ought to show mercy and grace. Job's friends would have been much better comforters had they done that. He said, Lord, be merciful to Job. Be merciful to us, sinners. Amos 7, verse 4, the second one. Thus, thus the Lord sh God showed me. Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. He shows them a second vision where there's this consuming fire. It consumes the deep, that's the subterranean water supply, and devoured the territory. They would have no water for their food, their people, or their crops. And Amos prayed, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Now, there's no power in this. It's not a formula that you say this and God will relent from whatever the thing he's going to do. But the fact is, is that he prayed and he says, you know, your power and your authority, it makes Israel small. We can do nothing. We have no hope in ourselves. And God's like, all right, this also will not be. God relents from doing harm. And this is what should have happened and could have happened for people who sacrificed their own children to idols, who were at ease and had no grief as they oppressed one another and stole from one another. That, that's what they deserved. And so he's showing them a picture of, yeah, death by, by fire, death by these locusts. That's, that's what's deserved here. But Amos is like, oh, Lord, cease, I pray. Have mercy. Joel 2, verse 12 and 13. Jonah 4, 2. God's character is described in this way, that he relents from doing harm. If we see people in trouble, whether we think they deserve it or whether they, they asked for it, we know that only God can deliver and save. He's the only one who can help us. He's the only one who can help them. We're not fatalists. We're followers of Jesus who pray, who will forgive and cease when we see that judgment come. Can you please turn to Hebrews 4, chapter 14, verses 14 through 16. I think as followers of Christ, we are um, greatly appreciative and thankful for the mercy and grace and help he has given us. But no, it's not just for us. It's for others. And having received that mercy and grace, we're to extend that for others, even when they deserve it, the punishment that comes. That should be our heart for them. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as are we, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There will never be a day 
when you are beyond the need of God's grace and his mercy. You need him now, and you will always need him. He is our life. We need him. And to the degree we realize we need him is the degree that we'll seek him. Because if you don't need God, why would you seek God? But if you know you need him, and sometimes it's that pain and weakness and grief that then leads us to the Lord, it, it kind of drives us to him when we would rather be at ease. We would rather be settled. But he's like, I'm going to unsettle you by these circumstances and things in the world. I'm going to leverage that to now move upon you to seek me and to cry out to me for their benefit. What does it say about us when we desire God to withhold mercies from others when we are unworthy of receiving that mercy? Amos 7, verse 7. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Third vision that we see. Uh, It says the Lord stood on a wall and he's holding a plumb line uh, with that wall that was built with it. Now a plumb line, if you don't know, it's a heavy weight that has a clear tip And it would be hung to, uh, it's still the gold standard on what's plumb or not because it always creates a perfectly vertical line. If you've ever like set up a post, well, you can get it vertical one way, but what about the other way, right? So you have to plumb it one way and you can feel really good about that, but it could be very sideways, vertical one direction, but not the other. Well, a plumb line, it's always going to be straight down. So you can know what, what is straight, what is vertical. Spirit levels, don't know if you know this, but just for interest, they can go out of adjustment. You drop one, drop it once or twice, and you realize that one of the bubbles is off, and you're like, ah, but the other one's still good. So you use it for years, but it's broken. You need a new one. If you actually care about things being level or plumb, okay? Now, I've learned that the hard way. I think I had one that my dad gave it to me because one of the bubbles was out and there was like three or four in it and it got to the point where there was only one and then, then I didn't know which way it was up and I'm like, I just need a new level. Um, and if you, if you spend the money, you get a fancy laser level. You know, if you use those for building, they should be uh, recalibrated every six months. Yeah, every six months because they go out of alignment. They need to be recalibrated. So when you buy a laser level, don't assume that it's going to be level for the next 20 years. Yeah, yeah, well, buy yourself a plumb line. Learn how to use it. It, It'll work. God's standing on this wall. He's holding that line. He says, what do you see? Well, that's a plumb line. And he said, I'm going to put a plumb line in the midst of Israel, and I'm not going to pass by them anymore. Like, he had endured their high places, and the cries of their children, and the cries of the oppressed for years. But now he was going to set up this plumb line and say, I'm going to measure you according to my righteousness, according to what's right. It's kind of like, have you ever passed by a picture in your house that was crooked? And it was obviously crooked. But you didn't have a spirit level with you, and you're like, ah, got to go to the garage and dig it out. And 
but finally, it just bugs you so much. Maybe it doesn't, but for some people like me, you'd be like, all right, that picture's been bugging me for who knows how long. I am going to fix it now. And you go out to the garage and you find the spirit level. And uh, it, it was a similar case with God's people. He's like, all right, the plumb line is going up right now. And everything will be judged according to my righteousness, according to the covenant that you made with me all those years ago. And I'm holding you accountable to that. I'm patient and long-suffering, but my, it has reached a time where there is now justice that's required. There is um, consequences for your sin. I think it's very telling that it's God who holds the plumb line. He does not hand the plumb line to Amos and say, all right, go walk around go check out everything that's straight or not, you get to decide. No, it was God's decision because the one who created gravity to work a plumb line is the one who's holding it and he's also the one who holds the sword. So he also meets out the judgment. So God is involved with all of that bit. It's God's role to make judgments according to righteousness. One of the things that you need to learn if you're going to want to build, never assume if you're trying to reno a house or something, that anything is level or straight. It will always be crooked. Boards twist. Um, just go home and check it out with your broken spirit level. And uh, <laughs> you'll see that this wall in a brand new house is way out of plumb. It's just not plumb because it, for whatever reason, it's not now. It could be anything. Yeah. It could be someone with a crooked eye or the, the wood shrunk. But this is an illustration of our need to align ourselves with God and his standard and his word. Because in a, we live in a crooked world that, and we are crooked people in this crooked world. Never assume that anything is right or straight. It's God who holds that plumb line. It's he who says, this is the right way to go. Without him, we don't know which way is straight. Because things look straight to our eye, things seem good to our judgments, and we live accordingly, but God knows better than us. The self-righteous Pharisees, they imagined they were the upright ones, and they denied Jesus, who was the upright one. They condemned him. And if they can make that mistake with their knowledge, so can we. It wasn't the Assyrians, again, it wasn't the Assyrians God was measuring with his plumb line. It was his own people. He says, I'm, I have set the standard. Now, the plumb line of covenant that God used to align his people with or to judge them is not the same line by which Jesus measures us. It's a plumb line of God's grace, his mercy, and the love that he has shown. Through repentance and faith in Jesus, we enter into a covenant through the blood of Jesus that has atoned for our sins. We've been washed clean. We're called to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We're called to love one another as Jesus loves us. Jesus commands us to forgive. That we should give freely as we have received. We should be praying for our enemies. We should do good to those who hate us. That's the plumb line that's held up. That Jesus is measuring us with. And the only way we can walk in that way is that Jesus is living his life through us. Because in our flesh there dwells no good thing. Now, Isaiah 53.3 describes Jesus, the Messiah, as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jesus grieved over the hard hearts. 
that would not listen, the unbelief, the, the hypocrisy, the self-righteous. He grieved over that. He prayed to the Father. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the question that came to me is just, am I grieved by sin in my heart, in my life, and repent? Am I, am, or am I more grieved by what's going on in the lives of other people or in the world? I need to direct that grief in the right way. So the grief has a good work of saying, Lord, I repent, and I want to do your will. And then when you see sin in the world, do you get angry at it? You get offended by it? Or do you cry out for grace and mercy for people who are blind, who are dead in sins and trespasses, or deceived? There is much what grieves our souls, but the joy of the Lord, that is central to the Christian life. And that's something we can't forget. Our Savior, Jesus, he's a man acquaint, he is a man of griefs. You know why? Because he's already born all of ours. It says that. If you want to turn there, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Jesus has borne our griefs, all of them. Just let this sink into your hearts. Because we can be very overwhelmed by grief, by problems and situations out of our control, and, and just painful circumstances that we have to live with to some degree. Isaiah 53, 4, saying of our Messiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You believe that Jesus died for your sins? All of them? Well, believe he also has carried all your griefs and your sorrows. He carried them. And as we as they hit us hard again, let us be casting them upon the Lord because he cares for us. It says that God put Jesus to grief to carry what we could not carry. You know, those, those griefs that we cannot bear, he has borne them. He carries them because he carries us. Grief that we experience, it can be good in unsettling us and, and move us to seek the Lord and to pray for others, to pray for mercy. And one person praying makes all the difference with God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good that you are a savior, that you have carried our griefs and sorrows. And Lord, so much grief can be just about me. But I pray that you would, you would move upon us, Lord, that we would not be at those rulers in Zion who were at their ease, not grieved for the sins of the people, not grieved for the judgment that was coming Lord, I pray you would put in us a willingness to grieve and to have grief work its perfect work, that it would lead us to you and to pray for others, even those who are under judgment, who are suffering uh, much trouble of their own doing or what they could not help. Lord, I pray that you would put in us a gracious heart, a loving heart, one that relents like yours and that we would seek you and intercede on behalf of others. People who have hurt us, people who are deceived, Lord, I pray that we would have great love for them because it's your love through us. Thank you for your, your exhortation, Lord, to seek you, and that we will find you when we seek you with our whole hearts. 
I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, if there is, if there is grief in their hearts even now, that you would uh, move them to turn it over to you, that when we're unsettled, Lord, we would rest upon you and your promises, that we would be casting our cares upon you because you care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.